We're in Ruth chapter 2 through 3 today. Um, I, I wish the book of Ruth was longer because I'd love to spend more time in it, but this is only a three-sermon series. Next week we'll conclude. Uh, I just want to start by telling you a story that's infamous in my family. Uh, when I was in seminary, I went to school in Fort Worth. Carrie and I had been married a year when I moved her off to Fort Worth to seminary housing, and she stayed with me, which shows that I married the right person. Uh, my brother at the time was a student at Texas A&M, and at one point I, I decided I wanted to go visit him on the weekend. And Carrie's parents at that time were living in Brenham, which is pretty close by College Station. So we thought, well, we'll just drive down there together and you can spend the weekend with your mom and dad and I'll spend the weekend with my brother and everything will work out great. I looked at the map and I saw that it was, in my, according to my estimate, about three hours drive from Fort Worth to College Station. I told my father-in-law, I'll meet you at 8 o'clock because we'll leave as soon as Carrie gets off work at 5 in the afternoon on a Friday. And according to the map, there's only really one turn to make. It's pretty simple. You, you go to Waco and you turn left and you get there. So 5 o'clock, I picked her up from work. We took off down I-35, set the cruise control on a, a mile per hour that I won't tell you, and uh, found a good radio station and sat back and enjoyed the ride. Made our turn in Waco and thought, well, we'll be there soon. Sun was setting. Time was passing. We were enjoying just being together. But I kept noticing in the back of my mind, you know, we still haven't seen any signs that say College Station. I wonder when we're going to start seeing those. It got to be 8 o'clock, and we should be there by now, and that's right around the time we rolled into a town called Heiko. Anybody know where Heiko is? Anybody? Okay, Heiko, I won't tell you where it is. You can look it up. But I only knew two things about Heiko, Texas at that time. Number one, it's the hometown of... Mitch the Wild Thing Williams, who was a relief pitcher for the Phillies in 1993, gave up the series-ending home run in the 1993 World Series to Joe Carter of the Toronto Blue Jays. There's your baseball trivia for the day. Second thing I knew about Heiko was it was nowhere near College Station. So, listen to this, guys, all of you 40 and under. There were no cell phones, or at least we didn't own one. There were certainly no smartphones. There were no GPSs. We actually had to pull over, pull out a physical map, right, and find Heiko on the map. You know, you look at that little, okay, H, and then two, and then you kind of draw, and there, oh, there we are. And then we had to figure out, okay, we went exactly the opposite direction than we should have. You know, only one turn to make, and I made the wrong turn. So it was another three hours to get to Fort Worth. Now, I had a problem because right then I knew my in-laws were sitting in a parking lot in a Walmart in College Station, Texas. And, and anybody who's ever met my in-laws knows they're not really Walmart kind of people, okay? They're not snobby, but they're just, you know, he worked hard, he was used to a better class of environment than the parking lot of a Walmart. So I was thinking about how, you know, we don't do annulments in Baptist life, but, you know, murder might happen. You know, he might just hunt me down and blow me away. Um, so I, I had to find a payphone. I had to call information, man, just ridiculous how primitive things were, and find the number to the Walmart and College Station, and then I had to call that Walmart. I had to get the manager on the phone and say, listen, there's a couple in their early 60s, they're um, in, and I forget what car they were driving them, but they were, they're in this car, I, I need you to go out to the parking lot and find them and tell them that their son-in-law is a moron, Okay. They already know, but they need some evidence of what's happened tonight. So, and then I had to take hope that this Walmart manager would actually do it, which he did. And then we made that long drive. 
And we got into College Station. We pulled into that parking lot around 11 o'clock. And I, I have to tell you, my father-in-law enjoyed telling that story for a long time after that. But not as much as my brother did. So everybody wins, right? I tell you that story because God has a plan for your life. You might say it's a roadmap. This is where I want you to go. This is the direction I created you to travel. These are the people I created you to impact and interact with and minister to. These are the good deeds that I prepared ahead of time for you to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. Psalm 139 says he knitted you together in your mother's womb and knew the days you would live before even one of them came to be. There's a plan for your life. You are not an extra in somebody else's movie. You're not part of the audience in somebody else's ballgame. You are the center of God's plan. And if you choose to follow that plan, here's what's going to happen. You won't have everything turn out your way. You won't get guaranteed rich. You won't guaranteed get all, your, get all your diseases healed. That's what they preach on TV, but it's not true. But what will happen is through good times and bad, through hard times, through easy times, through rejoicing, through sorrow, you will always be headed in a direction that makes a difference in the world. You will experience the joy and the fulfillment of accomplishing things that were set apart for you before you were ever born and knowing my life has meaning, my life has purpose. When I stand before God on my judgment day, I will not stand there proud. I will not stand there and say, look what I've accomplished. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your shed blood on the cross. But Lord, I'm so glad that by your grace, you used me. And now I'm I'm bringing all these other people with me. That's the path of God. The other way is to follow your own appetites, is to say, okay, this is what I want right now for me. And sometimes you get it and you feel very happy. And it's like eating a piece of chocolate cake. It tastes incredible. And then it's gone. And it's a long time before you get another piece. That's life outside of God's path. It's a a life of spiritual starvation. It's a life of disappointment and devastation. It's a life of always grasping for that next big thing that's going to get you over the hump, and it never actually does. So last week we saw Ruth, this woman born in Moab, Moab, the country just across the Jordan from Israel, grows up believing in other gods, gets married to an Israelite man. This man dies. Her father-in-law dies. She says to her mother-in-law, who's headed back home to the town of Bethlehem, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And that was the moment at which Ruth's life changed trajectory dramatically. That was the moment at which she said, I'm no longer walking the path of my ancestors. I'm going to follow the path that God has laid out for me. I'm going to follow the God of Israel. But guys, listen to me. I know if you were raised in a Baptist church like I am or another kind of evangelical church, you've been told that all that matters is that you accept Jesus as your Savior. If you do that, you're saved forever. And I agree with that. That's absolutely true. You're justified by faith. The moment you believe, no matter what you do, God's not going to let go of you. But I guarantee you this. There are going to be a lot of people in heaven who look back on their earthly lives with tremendous regret and say, I'm so glad I'm saved, but I wish I would have followed God's path. I wish I would have done more with my earthly life. I wasted my earthly life, my one opportunity to impact the world for his sake. 
See, Ruth made that choice to follow Israel's God, but she still could have stepped off the path. She still could have missed everything God had planned for her because what she was about to experience was not immediately her life gets easier. You know, that's what happens in the the faith-based movies, right? In the faith-based movies, the football coach gives his heart to Jesus and suddenly his team wins every game. In the faith-based movies, the, the Christian student gives his heart to Jesus and suddenly he makes all A's and the pretty girl goes out with him and everything goes great. But in real life, it doesn't work that way. And Ruth, because of her commitment to Israel's God, was about to experience more poverty than she'd ever known before, more ostracism than she'd ever imagined because now she's going to be living in a land where everybody spoke a different language and looked at her with suspicion because she's an immigrant. She was going to experience the the fear, the terror that some of you ladies know of being a single woman surrounded by men with no protection. And she was going to experience the frustration of trying her best to minister to and help a woman who wasn't capable of helping herself. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was so gripped with grief over the loss of her husband and her two sons that she literally was not willing to do anything to help herself. And some of you know that frustration as well. So would Ruth, in the midst of this, make the same mistake the Israelites made on the way to the promised land during the Exodus and say, Forget it, I've had it, I'm going back. Would she step off the path of God? And the second question that hits closer to home is, what does it take for you and me to stay on God's path and not miss what God has planned for you? So let's pick up with chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, I need to share a couple of, I guess, Bible background notes for you, things that uh, will shed light on, on ancient customs that don't exist anymore that make more sense of this story. Some of you remember if you watched the sermon last week or if you were here that I said the last verse of chapter one is significant even though it seems very mundane. The last chapter ended with these words in verse 22, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And I said, remember those words. Why is that important? It's important because there was a law in in the law of Moses, basically the constitution of the nation of Israel, that said that if you are a landowner, you are not entitled to keep all of your crops, which sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? How can you tell? It's my land. I sowed this field full of grain, full of barley, full of olives, full of grapes, whatever the case may be. I deserve to get every single grape, every single grain of every single head of grain, right? No, not according to God. God says when you're harvesting, if you're a landowner, you go through the field once. You get what you see, and then you move on. Inevitably, you're going to miss some heads of grain. Inevitably, you're going to drop some grapes. And those are for the poor. You see, in ancient Israel, it was an agricultural economy. And if you, your family had lost its land, then you had no way of providing for yourself. It's not like you could go out and get a job at the 7-Eleven or the Waffle House. Those places didn't exist. And it's not like you could rely on a once-a-month check from the government. That kind of social safety net did not exist. So God created gleaning. What gleaning meant was you had to take some initiative if you were a poor person. You had to know when your neighbor was about to harvest. And when that happened, you had to get up at the crack of dawn and be there with his harvesters. And as they worked, you walked along behind them and you picked up whatever they dropped or whatever they missed. 
And that way you were able to provide for your family. Now, it's a great system. It makes a lot of sense. The problem was a lot of Israelites didn't obey it. They just ignored it because there weren't cops in ancient Israel. There, wasn't fe- there weren't federal troops who showed up to enforce the law of Moses. God gave them the law and said, if you do these things, I'll take care of you. If you don't, I won't. And a lot of Israelite landowners said, I'm not going to let people glean. These people, they lost their land fair and square. I've got land, so I deserve everything I've got. I'll give you an example of of how the Israelites didn't follow the law. There is an actual law. It's a whole chapter of the book of Leviticus, your favorite book of the Bible. And and it's about the day of, or the year of Jubilee. It's an incredible chapter if you read it, because what it says is God's law decreed twice a century, once every 50 years, you would have a day, a year of Jubilee where if your family had lost its ancestral land, you got it back free of charge. If you were in debt, your debt was canceled. If you were enslaved, you went free with no uh, bounty being paid. Why? Because God said, I have set my law in such a way that if you follow my law to the letter, you will have no poor people in the land. Some people will have more than others, but everybody will have enough if you'll just obey my law. Well, of course, the Israelites didn't because they were like us. They were self-centered, self-focused people. So Ruth hears that Boaz is about to glean, about to harvest his crops. And she says, I'm going to go see if this guy will let me glean. He may not, but he may. Lo and behold, Boaz turns out to be a worthy man, a godly man who says, I'm going to do what the word of God says. I'm going to be a man of compassion. And he lets Ruth glean. Now, there's a second thing that happens, a second custom that we see in these verses, and that's in verse 3 when it says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Why does it tell us that she happened to come to that particular field? In fact, the Hebrew literally says, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Well, Ruth didn't know it at the time, but Boaz was related to her deceased father-in-law. And the reason that's important is because of an ancient custom called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was the idea that if you were a widow and you had no sons, you were defenseless in the ancient world. And so it was required or expected of your husband's nearest male relative to marry you, provide for you, bear sons by you, or conceit, not bear. (laughs) That'd be a trick, wouldn't it? Uh, Conceive sons with you so that you could have as you, grew, as you grew older, you could have a husband to take care of you, and then as you got to your old age, you'd have sons to take care of you, and those sons would carry on the family name of the father. Again, it was a perfect system for that world, but a lot of families didn't do it. A lot of Israelite men would say, well, I don't want to marry my brother's widow. I'm, I'm hoping for somebody that will be my wife. I'll be hoping, I'm hoping for somebody that's never been married before. I I want my sons to bear my name, not the name of my brother. But Boaz seems to be a godly man. And when when Boaz sees Ruth out there in the field, this young woman, he asks his harvesters, who is this this young lady? And they say, well, that's that's Ruth the Moabitess. She moved here with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And he says, oh, yeah, I remember her. She's the one who has started following our God. Well, she must be a remarkable young woman. Let's, let's help her out. So guys, why don't you kind of intentionally drop a little extra grain her way and you know, make sure she knows she can have 
all the water she wants to drink. And when we eat at the end of the, of the uh, harvesting each day, you make sure she's invited to the meal. And by the way, if any of you lays a finger on her, I'll hear about it and you'll have to answer to me. So treat her well. So Ruth gets home that first day and she's carrying more, more grain than she can hardly haul. And her mother-in-law says, I thought you went gleaning. It looks like you went harvesting. We're going to eat we're going to eat like queens for days. How did this happen? She says, oh, well, I ran into this nice man named Boaz. And she says, Boaz, he's related to us. He could be your redeemer. And right then, the wheels in Naomi's brain start to turn. Because she's thinking to herself, for the first time in a while, she's thinking to herself, I can help someone else. See, I don't mean to diminish grief, especially the grief of someone who's lost a husband and two sons. It has to be incredible. But grief has a way of of sort of getting us stuck in self-centeredness. Grief and pain are very, very, uh, it's very, very tempting to become self-focused in that moment. It's been a while since Naomi's thought of someone else, but now she's thinking about Ruth. How can I get this young woman married? She's a widow. She's too young to live the rest of her life with me. She needs a husband. Maybe I can, maybe I can, I can encourage this to happen. Maybe Boaz will ask her to marry him. But the best laid plans of mice and men and nosy mothers-in-law don't always come to pass. Seven weeks, the barley harvest continues. Boaz continues to be nice to Ruth, continues to be generous. She continues to come home each day with more grain than she could possibly carry. And yet, he never asks her to marry him. And right now, I want you to ask yourself a question. Are you familiar with Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus said that as a way of saying, if you don't focus on yourself, if you're not constantly worried about how am I going to eat, how am I going to dress my children, how am I going to take care of my needs, if you just put your faith in me and seek me first, then I'll take care of that other stuff. You'll have more than you need. It's a great promise. Have you ever been in a position in your life, though, where you thought, it's just not happening for me right now? I'm doing my best to be faithful to you, Lord. I, I'm doing all that I know to do to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, but I'm not blessed. And my neighbor across the street who runs around on his wife just bought a brand new Mercedes Benz. I saw it in the parking lot. How can that be? And my boss, who's the biggest jerk I know, it, he keeps, get, keeps getting promoted and, and I'm still stuck in the same position. And my kid has this kid at his high school who treats him like garbage and makes his life miserable. And all the adults at that school think that kid just hung the mood and they give him every award under the sun. Lord, it's not that I'm jealous, but I just, I, I want you to do what you promised. I, I'm doing my best and I just don't see that you're blessing me, but instead you seem to be blessing the people who do the opposite of your will. And I wonder if that's how Ruth felt. Remember, she was a new believer. It's very possible she said to herself, maybe this isn't working out so well. Maybe I should go back to Moab. We don't know. Either way, what I need to say to you is, if you're in that position right now waiting for Matthew 6.33 to kick in, don't give up. Because God has a different timetable than we do. He is the way maker, remember? The miracle worker, the promise keeper, light in the darkness. Don't give up. His best work is often done when it seems the darkest. So Naomi is not content. Verse 1 of chapter 3, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. What is that all about? Well, here's another ancient custom. 
When you finished harvesting grain, whatever grain it might be, wheat, barley, or whatever the case may be, you had to, you had to thresh it. And that meant you took a fork and you threw it up in the air and the wind blew away the chaff and nothing was left but the grain. Now, this is the fun part. This is the easy part. You're not out in the sun anymore. You're in a shelter down in a pit, the threshing floor. And so it was a time of celebration. So you would thresh for a while, and then you'd eat, and you'd drink, and you'd laugh, and then you'd lay down and go to sleep right there by the grain, and you'd wake up, and you'd thresh some more. And so this time of celebration, Naomi says, now's the time to try to take things a little further. You see, Naomi understood that, that we men can be a little slow sometimes. She said, we're going to have to give Boaz some encouragement. Verse 3, wash therefore... And anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Just so you understand, I used to think that this was about Naomi giving Ruth seduction lessons. Go get all fixed up, honey, and then you can turn his head. But that's not what's going on. When she says, anoint yourself, wash, and put on your cloak, she just means get dressed. Now, there's a similar passage in 2 Samuel about King David, where David is praying for his infant son who is dying. The son dies, and David, it says in 2 Samuel, gets up, washes, anoints himself, and puts on his clothes. Same language. All that, Ruth, all that Naomi is telling Ruth is, is take off your mourning clothes, put on the garments of an ordinary woman who is available. In other words, take off your wedding ring. They didn't have wedding rings back then, but this was the basic thing she's saying. Well, what about this business about uncovering his feet and lying down beside him? Doesn't that sound a little, you know, a little, uh, I don't know, not good? Well, here's what I think was going on. There wasn't any hanky-panky, that's the Hebrew term. It was simply her saying, it was a symbolic way of saying, throw your garment over me. I need protection. I'm a single woman in a world where a single woman can't live. I would, in, I would appreciate an offer of marriage if you're willing. You're an eligible redeemer. I'd be willing to be redeemed by you. The plan was that Boaz would wake up in the middle of the night because his legs were cold. He'd look down and he'd see this woman laying at his feet. He'd recognize her and he'd say, oh, she's not dressed in mourning clothes anymore. And then he'd think to himself, look at her, shivering there in the cold. She needs somebody. Why can't that somebody be me? But isn't there a risk in doing something like that? Absolutely. There's a huge risk. This guy who's been nothing but nice to you could turn mean, could say, how dare you approach me in this way? How dare you think that you, a foreigner, a, a poor person, could approach someone like me, a wealthy landowner? They could have to leave Bethlehem out of shame. So what happens? Boaz wakes in the middle of the night. He sees Ruth at his feet, and this is what he says in, in chapter 3, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And that gives us some insight into Boaz's mind. I haven't made a move yet because I figured I was too old for you. I figured you had some young guy on your mind and not me. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. 
But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So Boaz is a man who appreciates the law. He knows that by the letter of the law, there is a male relative who is more closely related to Naomi and Ruth, which tells us that he's already been thinking about this. And he wants to do things the right way. He knows that if he runs away with Ruth and gets married, there's a chance this closer male relative could show up and say, hey, that was my right, and that could bring shame upon their new marriage. So he says, I need to talk to this man first. We need to get the legal matters settled. But one way or another, I'm going to make sure you're provided for. And that brings us to the question, so how do we stay on God's path? Look how it worked out for Ruth. How do we stay on God's path? When I was younger, I was obsessed with this idea that if I just knew God's will, if if God just gave me the roadmap right now, then I would make all the right decisions and I'd always I'd always enjoy good circumstances. Nothing bad would ever happen because I got the roadmap right there. And then I realized that's a very selfish way to think. I was really trying to use God. It was all about me. What's your will for me, Lord? What do you you want me to do? Look at what happens in this story. Ruth is not thinking about herself. She's thinking about her mother-in-law. She's thinking about how can I keep this woman alive until her heart heals and she can help herself again. Naomi's not thinking about herself anymore. She has overcome her grief and gotten to the point where, yes, am I still sad about my husband and my sons? I will always be sad about that. But now I can can put my daughter-in-law ahead of myself. I can say, I'm going to get her married. Even though she'll no longer be there to take care of me, I can do something for someone else. And look at Boaz. Boaz is a man who has every right in our eyes to be selfish, but instead he allows gleaners into his field. Instead, he's kind to this young woman who's a foreigner, even though we know by now he doesn't think there's any hope for him as a romantic partner. He's just doing it out of kindness. And because of this chain of unselfishness, there's this incredible happy ending, this unexpected happy ending. And if even one of those people had chosen to be selfish and think only of themselves the chain would have been broken and this happy ending wouldn't have happened. So how do you stay on God's path? Not by sitting in a corner in a lotus position chanting om and not by praying over and over again, Lord, what is your will? What is your will? What is your will? You stay on God's path by serving others. See, the question, the key to staying on God's path is not constantly asking what is God's will. It's constantly putting others first. It's every day saying, okay, Lord, Who can I serve today? How can I make a difference in someone's life today? And then doing it. Because when you do that, when you do that, you're actually living out the gospel. If I could go back in time and talk to 16-year-old me, I'd say, get over this idea that God's going to hand you the roadmap. It's not going to happen. Just serve the person in front of you. Just be kind to the kid at school that's bullied. Just, just be kind to the substitute teacher today. Just be kind to your mom and dad. Just, just serve someone who's hurting. And, and by the way, young, there's more young people at this service than any other. If you're thinking, I want to know what to do with my life, don't ask the question, well, what's going to make me the most money or what's going to be the most fun for me? The first question you should ask is, how can I use my skills and my knowledge and my abilities to actually make the world a better place? Serve somebody else. And you'll be living out the gospel. Because what did Jesus do? He came into this world, the only human being in history who was perfect, the only human being who legitimately had the right to walk around saying, everyone, bow down to me. But instead, he said, the Son of God, Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came into the world and he said, I'm not going to give you the road map. You people can't even make a left turn in Waco. Instead, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to live the life that you should be living because you're not capable. And then I'm going to die the death that you deserve to die so that my righteousness will be transferred to you. My good deeds will be credited to you. You'll get the glory. You'll get the praise. You'll get the inheritance. And I'll get the punishment because I love you. And that's what he chose to do. And that's why if this morning you go home and you say, okay, preacher said that tomorrow I need to be unselfish. That's, a, that's my lesson. Then you've missed it. Because you can't do it. You and I can't do it. We're not capable of it. We may, you know, go off on a mission trip and be unselfish for a whole week, and then we get home and we're back to the same people. We're back to thinking of ourselves first. No, you've got to come to Jesus on a daily basis and say, Lord, change my heart. Lord, Help me to see people through your eyes. Help me to serve the people you place in front of me today. Maybe people I know, maybe people I don't. Maybe people I love, maybe people I can't stand, but help me to serve them. Help me make a difference in their lives today. And every day you do that, you're putting yourself in the center of God's will. And the decisions you make start to become much more clear. So why not give that a try? Follow the path of God. Stay on track with Him.